0: Hello, gal Nation, and welcome back to another thrilling episode of the Micro moment the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And I'm Julie. Today, we continue to travel through time unveiling the most diabolical schemes to use microbes for villainous crimes. As per our last six, six episodes, this will definitely be a multi-parter. We might even be three parts because you know us in our research. We just cannot stop. But after this, we are all cut up into the time frame, and this might very well be the end of the season, so if you are all done and want to be out of bioterrorism, fret not my friends, we are getting very close to the end of bioterrorism. And our next season probably will be something a little bit lighter, but we'll see. So as we embark on this multi-part journey, we will shed light on the dark and intriguing world of bioterrorist X. From the early days of DNA discovery in the 1950s to the tumultuous 1990s, we'll explore the shadowy events that changed the course of microbial history. But before we plunge into these gripping tales, let's set the stage. The mid-20th century was a time of remarkable scientific advancements, The unraveling of the DNA structure by Rosalind Franklin, Watson, and Crick in the 1950s revolutionized genetics and set the stage for the groundbreaking discoveries and the age of the microbiome research of the 21st century, which y'all know I love so much. It was an era of hope in progress with the promise of unlocking the secrets of life itself. This is also not far after the polio vaccine was created. Uh, that was in the 40s.
1: Was it the 40s or the early 50s?
0: Yeah, I think somewhere around there, yeah. Which was also a very big advancement in science, and although most people on the anti-vax side forget today, it was a time of great rejoicing and changed the way we do medicine forever. Who was that, Sulk?
1: Yeah. Sulk created the vaccine.
0: Yeah. And he had a parade. They had a parade for him and everything. I love a good parade. Mm Mm-hmm. When they used to put scientists in parades.
1: I think there were two different vaccines that were competing at the time, but his was better overall if i remember correctly
0: we haven't done a podcast on him either no that'd we be interesting we'll add it to the list Although it was a time of great scientific advancement, it was also an age of heightened tensions. Marked by the Cold War and the looming specter of nuclear annihilation, these fears fueled scientific research into not only the potential benefits of genetic knowledge, but also the darker possibilities. Societal and cultural shifts were equally transformative during this time period. The civil rights movement, the feminist movements, the counterculture revolution of the hippies was reshaping societies across the globe. As people challenged the status quo and boundaries blurred and new ideas took root. And a lot of the ideas that took root during that time are still why we are the way we are today. The world of the micro moment, as we could say, in this era was one of dichotomies. On the one side, we had the great scientific enlightenments of discovering of DNA, the vaccines, as we've talked about, antibiotics. But on the other hand, we also had quite a bit of bioterrorism that occurred in this 50-year period. Plus, you add on the societal unease, the Cold War. It was an interesting time. It's within this complex tapestry that our stories of bioterrorism unfold. But before we get started, it would mean so much to us if you hit the subscribe button and rate the show. It really would help us out to reach more fans like you and keep the podcast going. So please, just take a second, rate the show, like it, send it to a friend, whatever it is you think you'd like to do to help us out, we would appreciate it. So are you ready to journey back in time and explore the ugly bioterrorist attacks?
2: Let's do it. Sure I am.
0: All right, so this is basically going to be the John show. I think John's going to talk to us about one bioterrorist act that happened in America.
1: Yep. So I want to say beforehand that there might be different accounts mixed in together here. I pulled from many sources, and it's the later time points that I think get a little muddled in all the different news outlets, not to mention the dramatization that went on. So I think some things may not be 100% correct. But I did try to pull from multiple sources, try to figure it out.
0: Yeah, that's a good point to say with anything happening in this time frame. We are also in the time period of mass media, where different people, different biases, different networks are pouring the same thing, each with their own little twist on the
1: facts. Exactly. So let's set the beginning of the story. September 17th, 1984, in the Dales, the county seat of Wasco County in a region of orchards and Wheat ranches in Oregon. Located near the Columbia River, the Wasco-Sherman Public Health Department in Oregon began to receive reports of people falling ill with gastroenteritis. By September 21st, the county was being overwhelmed with sick and frightened people. The hospitals and health facilities are reporting that many people have said that they had eaten food from salad bars. And on September 25th, the local health department closed all salad bars in town. Being I don't over-
0: love a salad bar. No. No.
1: I don't think I've actually eaten from a salad bar Me at a either. restaurant.
0: And I don't know if it's because this and the zeitgeist and it was just like, yeah, you don't eat from salad bars.
1: Or it's just like, I'm going to go with the pizza or burgers instead.
0: I mean, there could be that too, but yeah, I want to go for a salad bar.
1: Right. Being overwhelmed, the county contacted the CDC to investigate the outbreak.
0: So this was, you said it started September 17th and by September 24th. 25th. 25th, they shut down all the salad bars. Yeah. Wow, that's a fast response.
1: Yeah, they weren't fooling around. So, yeah, they contacted uh, CDZ to come investigate it, which they had identified as a bacteria called Salmonella typhi mirium. Bum, and, bum, bum. and this incident was no mistake.
0: Do tell more.
1: Before I get into the sinister story, I should probably dive into what type of bacteria Salmonella typhi mirium is.
0: Mm, you know we love a micro-moment around here. Sure do. Mm-hmm.
1: It has been a long time since my class in medical microbiology, so I forgot a lot about Salmonella. The genus is a rod-shaped gram-negative bacteria that comprised of only two species, Salmonella enterica and Salmonella bongori. Salmonella enterica has six subspecies that are further divided into over 2,500 serotypes, one of which is Salmonella Typhemerium. So, its proper name is Salmonella enterica serotype typhi merium. Serotypes are groups within a species of microbes which are differentiated based on the structure of their surface. The outermost portion of Salmonella's surface covering is called the O antigen, and a thread-like structure that's part of the flagella is the H antigen. And people may have heard these in terms of E. coli before, such as O157H7. That's the deadly E. coli that seems to come around every once in a while.
0: Oftentimes on, like, lettuce, right?
1: Yeah. So, salmonella typhi miriam is modile with a vagilla that I had previously mentioned, a facultative anaerobe, so it can grow both aerobically and anaerobically.
0: With oxygen and without oxygen.
1: True. And which I didn't know is an intracellular pathogen. Like I had mentioned, this bacteria causes gastroenteritis, also known as salmonellaosis or the inflammation of the intestines. In fact, it is one of two salmonella species to do so. People get sick by ingesting contaminated food, water, or on the fingers and surfaces. In fact, it mainly comes from diseased meats of poultry, hogs, and cattle and stored food that are exposed to fecal matter, such as Gross. from rodents during storage and humans when preparing food.
0: Well, that's that's something to think about. Yeah. Fecal matter from the
1: humans as they prepare your food. Always wash your hands, people. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, but you can't wash everybody else's hands. Yeah, well, we're telling everyone to wash their hands. Mm.
0: I wonder if all the COVID washing hands is already gone and people are like, well, we tried that, didn't work, going Maybe. back to not washing my hands.
2: People have short memories, so I would think so. True, true, true.
1: So symptoms appear 12 to 72 hours after infection and can last four to seven days. Symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea with blood and mucus, Ew. fever, and stomach cramps.
0: Sounds pleasant. Oh, yeah. What a little vacation.
1: People can exhibit signs of dehydration, and the diarrhea can be severe enough that hospitalization and rehydration therapy is needed.
0: Is that the only way that they can treat it is rehydration therapy? Like cholera? Kind of, but
1: that's that's, uh, in extreme cases, really. Mm. So, recovery uh, occurs in a few days, although infants under a year old that contract it frequently get salmonella in the bloodstream and require antibiotics. In fact, the CDC recommends not using antibiotics unless severe symptoms, and it is very rare to be fatal.
0: Well, at least there's that, I guess. Yeah. It's going to be a a terrible week.
1: You're not in for a good time. No. In fact, I remember listening to a podcast and someone had wrote in saying that they were part of a salmonella vaccine Mm -hmm. treatment. They were in the hospital, and I guess they were at the placebo group, and he said it was the worst six days of his life.
0: He was in the placebo group?
1: Yeah, he ended up being in the placebo group.
0: So then how did he get salmonella?
1: Because they get the vaccine, then they had to be subjected to salmonella. He didn't develop an immunity.
0: Oh, the the placebo group didn't get the vaccine. Right. I thought the placebo group didn't get the bacteria. Nope.
1: And he said he was so weak that he had to have medical staff just to bring him to the bathroom.
0: Wow. You know, I think recently there was a restaurant that got shut down in Boston for a similar thing, and one of my co-workers' kids ate at that restaurant.
1: Oh, man. And
0: she was down for the count for, I don't know, 7 to 10 days or something.
1: The Poor well, kid. There you go. Salmonella causes 1.35 million infections, 26,500 hospitalizations, and 420 deaths in the United States every year with food being the most common source.
0: Wait, so 3.5 million cases and 400 deaths?
1: One 1.35 million cases and 420 deaths.
0: Mm, okay.
1: That's a very low number, considering. Yeah. A closely related serotype is one you've probably heard of, Salmonella typhi, made famous by Typhoid Mary.
0: Oh, I love her. I was here for Halloween last year.
1: You sure did. It causes typhoid fever and... Only infects humans, while salmonella typhi merium infects both humans and animals. Salmonella typhi is also more dangerous as it can cause liver damage, inflammation of the heart, and is fatal up to 20% of cases. Whoa. So if you're going to get it, get typhi Mirium, not typhi.
0: Yeah. Slight difference. Whole lot more fatal.
1: Oh, yeah. As I had stated at the beginning of this story, the CDC came to figure out what happened, conducting an investigation on the origin of the local gastroenteritis epidemic. The county typically reports less than five cases a year, and from 1980 through 1983, only 16 isolates of the salmonella had been reported by the local health department, with eight isolates being salmonella, typhemerium. The CDC was collecting isolates throughout the state of that year, trying to pinpoint the source. But none of the isolates collected in Oregon from sporadically occurring cases, ranging from July to December of that year, resembled the outbreak strains from the Dales.
0: Mm, we got a little mystery on our hands.
1: Sure do. The CDC was having a difficult time pinpointing the cause of this outbreak. The implicated food items contained in the salad bars differed from one restaurant to another, and they couldn't identify any water supply, food item supplier, or distributor common to all affected restaurants nor were employees exposed to any single common source. During the months of September to October of that year, there were two waves of outbreaks occurring. People were identified via passive and active surveillance.
0: What does that mean, passive surveillance?
1: My guess is probably like a hospital or a clinic um, letting them know. Like they got sick, so they went, and they probably reported that. And people were also ID'd uh, via stool samples. Managers of affected restaurants were interviewed about unusual incidents or disgruntled employees. And ill employees with a single negative stool specimen were required to submit a second specimen for confirmation before returning to work. Which I think was similar to the early days of typhoid. Because people ended up becoming carriers without Mm -hmm. symptoms. So they had to... Prove that they didn't have it. Especially.
0: Probably a typhoid Mary thing again.
1: Yep. Despite investigating, the CDC couldn't find the cause of the outbreak. It wasn't until the FBI investigated a cult in the area, which had recently metaphorically imploded for another criminal investigation, that they found several vials. And this religious organization is what many call the Rajneeshi cult.
0: Rajneeshi?
1: Yep. R.A. J N E E S H E E. Alright. I'm, I'm is this
0: an Eastern culture? Indian? It's Indian. Indian.
1: So what is the Rajnichi cult? I will try my hardest to pronounce things correctly, but I'm terrible at pronouncing words as is, so please bear with me.
0: All we can do is try our best.
1: So I want to get a sense of what this quote organization was. A lot of what I talk about here is what I found online with some coming straight from the organization's website, which I will try to note as I read. It was led by a man named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and he was born on December 11th, 1931. When he was I young. love a
0: cult named right after its cult leader. Right. No ego at all in that.
1: Well, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think he called his cult after him i think it's what the media called it
0: oh he because didn't name his cult head. isn't that the fun of like making a cult
1: i don't know he he called his um disciples a specific word which i'll get to but i think i think it may have been labeled by the media
0: Hmm. yeah that makes sense
1: this, this is one of the things i'm not 100% sure is correct or not
0: yeah it's one of those things that's hard to trace 50 years after right 50 years? 60 years 40 years. You 40. said 80s, right? 40s. Yeah.
1: When he was younger, he theoretically searched out and absorbed insights from teachings of various religious traditions active in India when he was younger. At the age of 21, he had an intense spiritual awakening, which inspired in him the belief that individual religion religious experiences is the central fact of spiritual life and that such experiences cannot be organized into any single belief system. So, his organization's website at this time says that he became enlightened at the age of 21 on March 21st, 1953. Well a
0: very specific date. Yeah,
1: while majoring in philosophy. He finished school and became a professor, but I didn't find anything about him in this period of time. Again, the organization says in 1966, Rajneesh left his post as a professor of philosophy at the University of Jabalpur, to devote himself to raising of human consciousness, traveling India, and to debate religious leaders, as well as teach uh, meditation and gathering followers as he traveled.
0: He was on a mission.
1: He was. He He became a spiritual leader that preached Eastern mysticism, individual devotion, sexual freedom his disciples to live fully in the world without being attached to it. In 1970, Rajneesh established a following in Bombay, where he took on the title of Bhagwan, or Lord, and was seen by his followers as the spiritually enlightened master. Rajneesh called his devotees Neo-Sanyasins and S- sannyasins, as I can understand, are people that were trying to become enlightened or gain a deeper spiritual understanding and typically renounced the world and practiced self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. So you would see this in India, like typically it's older individuals that go off on their own to seek enlightenment and There's been several documentaries that show like older men by themselves. They don't have any possessions, stuff like that. I believe they are the senescence.
0: But they don't participate in indulgence, but they have sexual freedom?
1: They don't. This is where he differs. Like this is going against what their traditional...
0: I thought his cult at the beginning had sexual freedom.
1: Yes. Is that not an indulgent? It is indulgence. He's going against what a typical definition is.
0: Oh, okay.
1: That's why they're called neo sannyasins. Mm. His order did not renounce ties to the world. Rather, they saw themselves entering into a more conscious life, which was greatly offensive to many Hindus, since renunciation normally renounced sex, wealth, and family ties. Devotees initiated into his movement were required to don the traditional robe of a renunciate. So, it was red rather than ochre. I don't know what that color is. And wear a mala or a rosary necklace.
2: Wait, how do you spell it? Ochre?
1: O-C-H-E-R.
2: I think it's yellow.
1: Okay, that makes sense. It's
2: like a dirt clay color. Oh. Instead of red? Red's yeah. the normal one?
1: No, no, no. They, they did red instead of... Oh, they did of... red instead of the yellowish yeah. one. Yeah. In 1974, he acquired land for an ashram or a monastery in Indian religions in Pune, which is southeast Bombay, which became his headquarters for the rest of the decade. This became a center where followers would flock and up to 100,000 people passed through
0: a year. 100,000?
1: Yep. And he would give a 90-minute disclosure nearly every morning. According to the organization's website, again, Rajneesh spoke of the search of harmony, wholeness, and love that lies at the core of all religious and spiritual traditions, illuminating the essence of Christianity, Hasidism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, Tantra, Tao, Yoga, and Zen.
0: Well, that all sounds nice. Yeah. I don't understand how this leads to bioterrorism. We'll get there. Okay.
1: Yeah, this doesn't sound too bad so far, right? This sounds great. The talks he gave covered the meaning of life and death, to the struggle of power and politics, to the challenges of love and creativity, and the significance of science and education. Dynamic meditation, too. Yeah, dynamic meditation was also taught here. A process designed to allow people to experience the divine. Dynamic or chaotic meditation involved a fast, intensive breathing intended to break through tensions and related emotional blocks, followed by a cathartic release of emotional energy. The mantra Ho was then shouted intensely to further raise the energy level with special effects of the sexual centers of the body. This was formed by a period of absolute stillness and silence during which a form of meditation ensued. This was meant to let go of person's tension, and the organization says that, quote, most traditional meditation techniques require one to sit still and silent. But Rajnish understood that most of us accumulate stress in our body or mind and makes that difficult. Before we can enter our inner sound spaces, we need to let go of our tensions. That part of dynamic meditation I can understand because just sitting in silence is hard, especially if you have a lot of stress.
0: Oh my god, I've tried it so many times, it never works. Maybe I gotta start yelling ho. <laughs> H-O-O. Oh, who, who. I'm going to yell who, not (laughs) ho. I mean, whatever. Whatever comes out, that's what it's going to be.
1: Sure. The center also developed a diversified program of New Age healing adopted from the West. I should also mention that Ma Anand Sheila or Sheila Ambala Patel was a key figure in the ashram activities since first joined in 1972 and was even the Rajnechi's lieutenant.
0: Lieutenant, like they had military ranks. I that, that seems really aggressive for someone.
1: Yeah, that that might be that might be an article embellishment. Like mm-hmm. she was one of the leaders. Oh, okay. I want you to put a pin in this name as it comes back later in the story.
0: Put a pin in it.
1: Not everything was hunky dory at the center, though. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: hunky dory. Hunky dory. There were problems of sexually transmitted diseases among the promiscuous followers. Mm-hmm. And a few of the female devotees turned to prostitution or to make enough money to stay at the ashram. The Indian authorities also questioned the charitable status of the ashram, which had reportedly required some 80 million in donations in only a few years.
0: 80 million? Yeah. Wow.
1: Rajneesh's accountants were accused of not keeping proper receipts and documentation, resulting in the government ending up pursuing the group for 4 million in unpaid taxes.
0: Well, they have 80, so yeah, what it's for. Also, it's got to be hard to keep track of all the documentation for $80 million.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. I never had $80 million, so I couldn't say yes or no to that.
0: Yeah, when you're like a peace, love, and religion kind of place, you don't exactly have a CFO on your uh, roster.
1: True. In 1981, Roshnich seemed to abandon many of his followers by suddenly leaving the ashram with a handful of key workers who were involved in his secret plans and moved to the United States shortly. Ther- and there
0: was no reason for that? It seemed like he was, like, doing the thing over there.
1: He's going to build a new facility, I think.
0: You just got bored?
1: I don't understand the methods. I mean, I know there's books out there. There's also a documentary on Netflix about this cult that I didn't have time to watch.
0: Didn't you say it was a little shady?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's a Huffington Post article that said that, like, it was a little shady because they didn't, get all sides. Like, they only told part of the story. That's so, the problem
0: with documentaries. Yeah. They're I, trying to convince you of a something.
1: Yeah, instead of telling you both sides, which I think documentaries should do, but that's a tangent for a different day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Shortly thereafter, the ashram was closed, and many of the items there were sold. Uh, a foundation that had was set up earlier, and probably for the donations, the Rajneesh Foundation was disbanded a new corporation the Rajneesh International was founded, but the organization's website makes no mention of this except that he went to spread the word in the U.S. In the U.S., Rajneech and his followers bought 64,000 acres of land in Oregon Oh my god. called Muddy Ranch for almost $6 million in Wasco country.
0: $6 million, 64,000 acres? Yep. Wow, we're like trying to get a quarter plot of Acre for a million dollars.
1: Right. And this was to, according by the U.S. Air Force, make a Buddha field, an agricultural commune in which they could celebrate their enlightened master's creed of beauty, love, and gilla sex. This was to be their new headquarters. And within two years, around 7,000 residents, largely North American and European lived there, and they had a water system a police force. By 1984, the commune had a private airport, a shopping center, a 145-room hotel, and a commune bookstore, although it only sold books written by the Rajneesh.
0: How many books did he write?
1: Uh, I think they said like 300 books over his life.
0: That's prolific. Wait, so they had a hotel for visitors to stay in?
1: Yeah. They're always trying to get new people to convert, so they would probably come and visit. The Rojnichis celebrated the coming of Dawn Dusk by bowing to Rojnich and singing for him as he slowly cruised by in one of his 90-plus Rolls Royces. Oh
0: my god, no. Yep. Wow.
1: 90 Rolls Royces.
0: In the 80s?
1: Yep. That was the hot ticket car at the time.
0: I mean, it's still a hot ticket. Because they're a good zillion dollars,
1: mm-hmm. and he had ninety of them.
0: I could never worship a guy with ninety Rolls Royces. I'd be like, "Nah, dude, I'm out."
1: That's a big. That's a big O oh sign already. I mean, especially when
0: you're like peace, love, and sex.
1: I mean, there were people in India going to prostitution just to pay to stay at the ashram.
0: Yeah, see, that's not cool, man. Yeah,
1: and you have eighty million dollars. It's like. Mm. And you're buying all this, you can afford people to live there without having to sell themselves.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that fundraising tactic, a lot of uh, CEOs would like that skill.
1: Yep. And in the evenings, thousands gathered in rapid attention to watch two hour long videotapes of his hypnotic disclosures. Oh
0: my God, sounds boring.
1: It does. But the peace and harmony did not last long here. Relations between the cult and the country officials deteriorated over time due to land use issues and the cult's desires to expand. I also think that there is a, probably a fair amount of racism involved, too.
0: That's probably true.
1: Yeah. And then all of a sudden you see this commune pop up. I mean,
0: of an Eastern religion, yeah. which was not really accepted a lot of times in Western societies. Right.
1: I think that was a factor. Yeah. They even created a separate city within the ranch called the Rajneesh Param, but because the ranch was agricultural land and part of Wasco country, the development of one would violate state land use laws. In fact, the state attorney argued against this incorporation as it was closed to non-inherence, which the court agreed, but the state Supreme Court ruled that incorporation was legal, but the time the ruling came, uh, the settlement had already imploded. So it was a moot point at that time.
0: Does take a long time to go through the justice system? It sure
1: does. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets murky as as to who was the ringleader here. But most, at least in the eyes of the court, say it was Ma Anand Sheila, who I'm just going to refer to as Sheila from here on out, who did what came next, and the Rajnesh was inordinately unaware. But I have a hard time believing that. That being said, I will be directing all actions toward Sheila. Someone who grew up in the cult said that their, quote, memory of Sheila is that she was, very, she was confident, funny, and cool. But I also knew, because I would hear my parents, that she was ruthless. And I think it was clear the power she had. Under her tutelage, they started carrying weapons there was an increased tension and power struggles and that there were more and more guns about the place. So peace,
0: love, and sex down the drain.
1: Yep. So Bringing that's going the down the drain. They also. Why
0: though? Like why did they turn aggressive? Like they are just chilling in their commune. It seemed pretty cool. I
1: think they were getting paranoid because of the locals. At least that's what.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the government seemed to be like yeah. coming at them.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the arguments is they're getting paranoid. They also tried to close the community off from the press. Sheila wanted to get the local government to bend to her will. Under her direction, the Rojnichi cult experimented with poisons, chemicals, and bacteria. Uh Uh-oh. There were a long list of accusations of what Sheila attempted to do. In the summer of 1983, two Wasco County Commissioners conducted a mandatory inspection of the Rojnichi Ranch prior to its annual summer festival. The Rajneachis gave the two commissioners water laced to a salmonella typhi miriam. Rude! While they waited for their car, their car's mysteriously flat tire to be repaired. Eight hours later, both men became ill and one was hospitalized. Both suspected that the Rajneachis had put something in the water, but neither had evidence, thus no charges were filed. There were different schemes that she tried to enact, including a conspiracy to assassinate the public prosecutor, Charles Turner. And a plot to crash a plane into the county planner's office.
0: Sheila needs to chill out.
1: Yeah. There was also a team of would-be assassins dressed as nurses to poison a hospitalized county commissioner. An attempt to gun down the U.S. attorney in Oregon. Wiretapping. Secretly pouring antipsychotic drugs into kegs of free beer. Injecting Roshnich's personal physician with poison and, and attempting...
0: Why? Why his personal physician?
1: They claimed that they thought he was scheming against the Rojnich.
0: This girl needs to chill. Yeah. She can take a chill pill.
1: She got drunk with power, apparently.
0: Mm. There are easier ways to get drunk.
1: Yeah. There was even arson. Efforts were made to subvert Oregon's liberal voting laws. Commune members believe that the outcome of the upcoming November 6, 1984 elections for Wasco country. Commissioners would have an important impact on further land-use decisions. One way to do this was to bus in homeless. The group made promises of free food, free beer, and a life free of crime. They were just humanitarians helping to address America's shameful homeless epidemic. But they were simply importing the homeless to pack local voting polls and control local elections.
0: Hate that.
1: Yeah. Their person who grew up on the compound said that he would see them on the other side of a fence, which makes me believe that they just corralled people into a Mm. pen. A source said that they were then tossed out into the streets after they had served their purpose. To top this all off, Sheila ordered a test run of poisoning locals to get ready to do so again during elections.
0: Come on, Sheila. What is wrong with her?
1: I don't know. This brings us back to the beginning of our story. There was a lot of attention going on during this outbreak, and so Sheila and several followers fled. I don't know if this was the instance that caused them to fled or all the other accusations and they felt the heat. After the collapse of the commune, the FBI, with technical assistance from the Oregon Public Health Laboratory, investigated clinic and laboratory facilities found on the site. A sample of Salmonella typhimurium seized on October second, nineteen 1985 was compared with the outbreak strain and was a match. Records indicate that the laboratory had obtained this file from a commercial supplier of biological products and members of the cult subsequently admitted to contaminating salad bars. The cult also purchased an incubator the size of an apartment refrigerator, a quick-freeze dryer for agent preparation, and cultures also of salmonella typhi and Phenensilla tularensis, which comes back again, tularemia. Oh! This is the third time I think we've talked about in the history of bioterrorism.
0: It's becoming very clear why the CDC put that on their top eight bioterrorist agents.
1: Yep. but Something look-
0: I never heard of before, but we're hearing A whole <laughs> lot about it now. A whole
1: lot of it. This ended up being the first documentary bioterrorism incident in the U.S. And like I said, the reason was so they wanted to infect residents on election day.
0: I mean, how many people did they think was going to buy a salad on election day?
1: Uh, They were just using that as a test run. Who knows? I think they were planning on putting in the water as well.
0: But isn't lacing a bioterrorism agent in water very different than putting it on like some lettuce?
1: Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to put it in after the, the water was treated I don't know if it would work or not, but some former followers stated that most didn't know about the serious crimes, although they now remember the, quote, illusion of us versus them and how dangerous it was to leave the ranch. The propaganda was relentless. Rajneesh ended up denouncing Sheila and the other followers that left and actually admitted to the cult's role in the salmonella poisoning. Sheila and another member, Puja arrested and convicted for the attacks and were sentenced up to four years in jail. That's it? Yeah. And then they fled to Europe upon release to avoid further prosecution by the state of Oregon. But going back to Roshnich, he left the commune by plane in October of that year, perhaps in an attempt to flee from prosecution. He was apprehended and eventually made a plea deal on immigration fraud charges and agreed to leave the country.
0: America? Or he yeah. fleed to a different country?
1: To leave America.
0: Oh, I thought you said he left America in October.
1: He tried to. Uh, he had a private jet in it. There was a...
0: But the other two left and could get to Europe?
1: But they had already been jailed at that time. That's after they got out of... They were convicted. They when,
0: spent their four years and then and came then out?
1: bounced immediately. Mm, okay. And he had a layover, I think, in Florida, maybe? Or it was on the East Coast and they immediately arrested him, or detained him, I should say. The movement's website claims that, quote, Rojnich invited law enforcement officials to investigate the crimes committed by the group, but the authorities saw this as a golden opportunity to destroy the commune entirely. Federal and local officials arrested him for at gunpoint without warrants and held him without bail for 12 days. Fearing for his life, attorneys agreed to an affold plea of two of 35 charges brought against them by the federal grand jury in secret session. The U.S. attorney in Portland, Charles Turner, later publicly conceded that the government was intent on destroying the commune, which that's the website saying that. So they still believe that this is shenanigans today.
0: What does the Oregon police say?
1: I mean, the state of Oregon has it as the cult did this, like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So, Rajnich ended up touring the world for a while after being expelled from the U.S., with many countries denying him entry or expelling him once they found out who he was.
0: Did not get him a warm welcome, huh? No. Nope. They're like, we don't want no salmonella poisoning here. No, thank you. Nope. Bye.
1: Eventually, he returned to Puna and reestablished the ashram there, where he continued to teach He renamed himself to Osho, an ancient Japanese word meaning high-ranking Buddhist monk or highly virtuous Buddhist monk.
0: He put that on himself?
1: Yes. He renamed himself that.
0: Gotta love a man who's just like, yep, I'm like basically Jesus. Yep. Call me God now.
1: I am so enlightened. He was there until his death in 1990. But his movement still persists today. In the early 21st century, it had some 750 centers located in more than 60 countries.
0: 750 centers? Yep. In how many countries?
1: 60. What? Which is kind of fitting because like 751 people ended up getting sick from salmonella. Wow. (laughs) So it's almost equally the amount of people that got sick. They believe that Rajneesh was manipulated by Shia, like I said, And was unaware of what was exactly going on. I find this hard to believe. He was only in his early 50s. Though he looked much older. Like if you look at him. He's like well you're a lot older than in your 50s. And I think he would have had his senses about him. Not to mention he had an insane amount of cars. That may even make Jay Leno jealous.
0: 90 Rolls Royces.
1: Yep. However I could be wrong. As he did pass away in 1990 at the age of 59. Perhaps his health was slowly failing, and he was that easily manipulated. But I don't think so. For someone who has reached enlightenment at the age of twenty-one,
0: mm, yeah, you think if you're all that in a bag of potato chips, you would live past sixty? But wait, so they know? Do they have the reason for his death, or that's all secret?
1: His his health was failing. Like they said that he stopped giving uh, public speeches, and then like there was it kind of transitioned to more of like a silent meditation as opposed to him giving speeches and then he passed away like i don't know exactly how he died
0: yeah i mean it definitely sounds like some disease of of sorts to die that young when you have that much money and a personal physician that you think is slowly poisoning you
1: right apparently sheila thought that so but
0: i think you can just you know fire physician and get anyone
1: yeah you would think
0: but poisoning i guess is also an option not my first choice
1: <laughs> but was this the first bioterrorism attack on the u.s It has been claimed that this incident is the first biological attack in the u.s but i would dispute this i suppose that it was inadvertently the u.s that released an agent on its population Meat serice a bacteria that resides in soil and water that have distinctive pink colonies
0: oh yeah i remember those yeah a medical micro
1: a color that makes it useful in experiments. It is in September twenty-six, which was two days ago of this recording in nineteen fifty, or the anniversary was two days ago from this recording in nineteen fifty. And the crew of a navy vessel spends the next six days spraying this microbe in the air off of San Francisco. Why? Well,
0: just for funsies.
1: I'm about to get into. Okay, that, okay, actually. sorry, sorry. This project called Operation Sea Spray, not...
0: The Brits have way better names.
1: Yeah, that's a very direct name. There's no hiding what you're doing there. It was to determine the susceptibility of a big city towards bioweapons attack. After spraying, samples were taken at over 40 sites to track the spread of the bacteria and found that it had quickly infested not only the city, but surrounding suburbs as well. At the time, it was pretty much thought that this bacteria didn't affect people... But that changed after a week. Eleven residents went to Stanford University Hospital complaining of urinary tract infections. Wysseracea was so rare that the outbreak was extensively investigated by the university to identify the origins, becoming the first recorded outbreak of bacteria. One person ended up dying, and this incident didn't become public knowledge till 1976. This did not stop testing, though, as the military had performed similar tests in other cities across the country over the next two decades until Richard Nixon halted all germ warfare research in 1969. There was also evidence that the CIA did biotourism events in New York City, but this was reported by the Church of Scientology, so take that as you will.
0: Mm. Yeah, not super reliable source, I gotta say.
1: And that is the story of the Rishnichi cult.
0: Well, I loved it, and then I hated it, and then I really hated it.
1: It's not nearly as worse as my previous story in Unit 731.
0: Yeah, no, it was better than 731, but yeah, that's Sheila chick. Mm
1: -mm. Yeah, no, she's no good. I don't know whatever happened to her. She just bounced, and I don't know if she just went to hiding for the rest of her life. I mean, I
0: guess she could
1: still be alive, right? Theoretically, I would think so.
2: We're definitely not showcasing the... uh best of humanity in these stories. I mean, that's the
0: point. This is not the microbes fault. This is entirely humans faults.
1: So like, you know, the, the movements didn't start out bad, but it just,
0: I feel like that's how cults usually start, right? Like they're like, oh, peace, love and education. And
1: someone develops a gob complex and goes crazy with power.
0: Yeah. And then it just, it gets,
2: it turns real fast, real hard. It's also scary to think that Like, none of these people had a microbiology background, but they were still able to use microbiology to make people sick.
1: Right. Like, I've heard of other cults trying to do bioterrorism agents. They didn't have a micro background, or at least a bacterial background, and they were failing horribly. I will say that Sheila was a nurse, so at least that gives her a little bit of a leg up than uh, of other people and I don't know if they actually hired other microbiologists or other microbiologists that were within the cult
0: I definitely think that this involved a little bit more skill than what we talked about before but up until two episodes ago in this whole season we were talking about bioterrorism that happened before people knew what microbes were you know so it's it's not a terribly hard thing to do it's a terribly terrible thing to do for sure. But it's it's
2: microbes are everywhere. It's actually kind of surprising that we don't hear about it more often with people as disgruntled as they seem to be these days. I wonder why is it that we don't see it? Like I know obviously if you get caught at it, you would be treated as a terrorist.
0: I don't know only 4 years, it's not that long. Yeah,
2: I guess that's true, but I mean people you know do all kinds of bad things knowing that it's going to result in punishment if you get caught like i wonder not that i want to see it happen more often certainly but like i'm surprised we don't see it more
0: yeah i'm really surprised too that i mean we've done a whole bunch of episodes but it's surprising that in these episodes we basically covered every bioterrorism act that we could
2: find since the medieval times right or before medieval times even I would imagine most people, I guess they would think that they don't have the skills. Like, how do you handle, like, most, most of us don't know how to handle a serious pathogen without getting, you know, it's not just putting on a pair of gloves and storing it in your
1: kitchen, right? I mean, yeah, but we're not going to get into the proper <laughs> handling. Yeah, we're, we're we're not going to get into that.
0: I suppose it is slightly more effort than buying a gun in America, which is a problem in and of itself. Yeah. So that concludes part seven of our journey through bioterrorist microbe moments. We hope you enjoy delving into the murky paths of bioterrorism and into the 1950s to the 1990s. Actually, it was 1931 to the 1990s, basically, was his whole life. Yeah,
1: 1931 to 1990.
0: Right. As I hope you know at this point, the microbial world is a fascinating Place, and we will return with maybe one, perhaps two more episodes on bioterrorism in modern ish times. One episode will be about a Japanese cult. Another episode will be about anthrax, for which I have so much things I need to spend like probably another week trying to trim it down so y'all don't get bored to death with my 50 pages of notes on anthrax from 1950s to 2010.
1: Another episode of anthrax. Who would have thought?
0: I know. I know so much about anthrax. It's dangerous. But as we reflect on these stories, remember the remarkable scientific advances and the cultural shifts that defined this era. From the decoding of DNA structure to the challenges of societal norms, the 20th century was a time of immense change. Before we wrap up, we really, really do hope that you will rate and subscribe to the podcast, The Micro Moment. Your support helps us continue bringing you these captivating stories. So we hope you enjoyed us next time for more 21st century. Actually, we still have some 20th century, some 21st century shocking events in bioterrorism. Thank you for joining us on this microbial journey, and we hope you will join us next time. We can't wait to share the next chapter with you. Until then, remember, it's the micro moments that shape your world. So feed your microbes.
1: Feed your guts.
0: Make your microbes. Love you lets.
1: Bye. Bye.